with issue for all women. Hello, Mickey here. Welcome to this week's Sunday Chops, and it is a double portion of ear food for you this week. In this serving, Hannah and I chat to PhD scholar Jennifer Cassily about her research into young people's beliefs around sexual consent negotiation. It was a fascinating chat. Kids are little radars and they are picking up bad consent vibes from an early age. And while it is a tricky conversation to have with children, it is one we can't shy away from. Even if, like me, you don't have kids, there are ways that adults can let children know that their no is important. And so are other people's no's. Over on Serving de. Not there, it's French for two. There's more from journalist Holly Powell-Jones, who you might well have heard on this week's pod scene, chatting about how kids are faring on social media. This time, she's giving her expert advice on how we can all keep our noses legally clean on social media. You heard me, expert. Take that, gove. We have been kicking out a shed load of content recently, including our series of man specials, in which I chat to author Matt Haig about mental health and also talk to campaigner and author Luke Hart about domestic violence and the murder of his mum and sister by his father. Hannah went to Westminster to speak with Shadow Health Secretary Jonathan Ashworth about growing up the child of an alcoholic, and Jen chatted to Jordan Stevens, aka Rizzle of Rizzle Kicks, about toxic masculinity, and also Dr. Jacob Whittingham Vigors on the important work that is being done by Fight for Peace. There's also last week's Chops, which is our chat with historian Dr. Fern Riddell about immodest women, sexy Victorians, and terrorist suffragettes. Basically, loads of ear stuff. But for now, get your hair holes around this important conversation about consent with Jennifer Cassidy. Over to you, Hannah. Hi, Mickey and I are here in Teesside University in Middlesbrough with Jennifer Cassidy, the doctoral student in the psychology department who is studying consent. Could you tell us a bit more specifically what it is that you're actually studying? Okay, so for my research, I'm looking at young people ages 11 to 13 believe about sexual consent as it relates to non-coital sexual activity. So sexual activity that's more relevant for that age group. So that would include things like kissing, intimate touching, so fondling, um, touching on top of the clothes and sometimes under. Well, it's not that common for kids this age to be engaging in that behavior. It is it's not atypical either. So talking about consent as it relates to that as well as sexting because we do have some evidence that shows that kids as young as age 11 are engaging in sexting behavior as well. Oh yeah. <laughs> what was it that drew you to this area of research? I used to do some research in sexual violence with just female adolescents who had experienced maltreatment in their childhood. And I really enjoyed that research, but it was just really looking at their experiences and not doing anything um, related to therapy or any kind of prevention efforts, etc. So I started looking into what kind of research was needed to help prevent sexual violence among adolescents. Um, so it kind of led me to this research. When I was doing the literature review, etc., I found there was next to nothing about consent as it relates to young kids, yet we were finding in some of the research and uh, freedom of information data from different police forces around England that we are seeing an increase in peer-perpetrated sexual violence among young adolescents. So that kind of led me to develop this research. So the overall goal of the research is to create an education program for pupils in year seven and year eight about consent as it relates to, to non-coital sexual activity. For people who perhaps don't know what year seven and eight means what age you're talking about so year seven would include 11 and 12 year olds and year eight would include 12 and 13 year olds typically research consists of two studies so the first study is completed and what that consisted of was a, a focus group study and it, 
but it's just some same-sex groups, so just boys together and just girls together with their same-aged peers. That included a semi-structured interview, and the first part um, was asking them questions as they related to a set of vignettes, so stories that included heterosexual sexual coercion with two young characters, so they were 11, 12, 13, and 14. So the first vignette included uh, coercive kissing, and the second vignette included coercive sexting, and the third one included coercive breast fondling. So this was all verbal coercion. So what we did was ask the kids questions about who they thought was responsible in the situation, what they thought the outcome of negotiating consent in those situations would be, what might be the advantages and disadvantages of negotiating consent, and just kind of explored their beliefs about consent using those vignettes, because it would have been inappropriate to ask them those types of questions about their personal experiences, etc. Also, a lot of them would probably not have anything to to add, because they probably haven't experienced that at that young age. And then the second set of questions involved questions about what they thought their peers were doing, what they thought their peers believed about consent. And then the third set of questions asked them about how likely they thought it would be for them to be comfortable in the situation where they had to negotiate consent or non-consent, so to tell someone that they weren't comfortable doing something. And the reason that we're asking those types of questions is because we don't have any information about what these young people already believe, but we're wanting to create an education program. So if we create an education program, we kind of need to know what they already think about these topics before we can address those those issues. Because some consent programs out there, but A, they're typically for older adolescents around 14 and up or university students, and they tend to involve just consent as it relates to sexual intercourse, which isn't really appropriate for 11-year-olds, so we have to make it appropriate for them. But also, while there are a lot of programs out there, there's very few who have actually tested the impact of the programs, which I find really problematic because the schools get really excited. They don't know how to teach these topics, but they have these programs out there. Some of them are free, but a lot of them aren't, so they charge these schools, you know, something like 500 pounds or a thousand pounds to come into the school and give these education programs. And there's no information about whether they're even impactful. So it might be just a waste of the school's money. And also with these expectations for teachers to create things on their own, and they don't really, you know, know how to do it. They're just they're, there's so many resources out there, but we don't know what's effective and what's not. So that's what my research is doing is trying to create an effective program that we can actually test. So once I run the program starting in January, you'll be able to assess whether the intervention was in fact effective and what elements of the intervention were impactful and what weren't. So we can go from there. So it's very exploratory at this stage. The greatest finding was that there is an endorsement of sexual violence myths already present at age 11. So the first one was around victim responsibility. Both the the boys and the girls endorsed this. So they acknowledged that there was coercion in the situation with the vignettes. They said, oh, they referred to the boy as being pushy or or guilt-tripping the girl, etc. They used their own language to describe this. But they all tended to focus on what the girl could have done to prevent the situation from escalating or how she could have prevented the situation from even occurring. They all work for the police. (laughs) (laughs) It was a little bit surprising to see that they just immediately went for that. Yeah. Yeah. 
And that was uniform amongst girls and boys. Yeah, yeah, there wasn't any any difference between the boys and girls with that topic. They just seemed to endorse that, that the girl in that situation should have done more. It was her fault that the situation escalated. So we also found that in addition to some of the other kind of rape myths and victim blaming topics. In the fondling situation, I put the female character in a low cut V-neck top. I didn't ask the kids any specific questions about what the girl was wearing. I just put that in there to see if they would pick it up, if they would say anything at all about the way that the girl was dressed. And they all picked up on it. But this was the only difference we found between boys and girls. We found that the boys said that the way that she was dressed kind of communicated that she was willing to engage in sexual activity with the boy in that situation because because of what she was wearing. But the girls, on the other hand, well, they did pick up, you know, why, why was she wearing that, etc. In the conversations, the girls ultimately said she can wear whatever she wants. It doesn't mean that she's willing to do anything. It's not providing consent. But they did acknowledge that, you know, maybe she wore it to to entice the boy or to be attractive. And people do dress in, in certain ways to be attractive, and that's possible, and, and there's nothing wrong with that, but it also doesn't communicate consent at all. It is just just clothing, you know, and, and there was there was no conversation between the boy and the girl character about what the girl was wearing or anything, so they just picked up on that immediately. Did you discuss it openly within the group? Because one of the interesting things is, to me, where this idea of consent comes from. Was there a level of peer pressure within the group or were people coming to this decision by themselves? I think they were coming to it by themselves because there were disagreements, you know, and nobody really pushed the other one to say, oh, no, you're wrong. They were very much encouraged just to give their own opinions. I just framed it in that there wasn't any right or wrong answer. Obviously, there's one that's better than the other, but I didn't want to persuade them to answer in, in a socially desirable way. I just wanted them to tell me exactly what they thought. I was kind of concerned about that in a focus group setting. Would they just try to answer in the way that they thought their friends thought they should answer? But it didn't It didn't seem to be the case at all. There was quite a, a diverse conversation within the groups. So it seemed they were quite comfortable with disagreeing with each other. And were the groups mixed? No, they were same sex. Oh. Typically when you have these types of conversations and with very young people, it, it tends to be better to include just same-sex groups because they feel more comfortable typically talking about these these topics. If they were a mixed group, um, especially if they're new people, people they're unfamiliar with, they might not even respond at all. Yeah. So that's that's why I made that choice to just keep them same-sex. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, what was the reaction from the kids about talking about this? Well, I asked them for the first few sessions what they thought about the, the focus group, etc., just to get some feedback to see if there were any changes I need needed to do for the rest of them. And they were all quite excited to talk about it. They said that it was really great that they were able to talk openly about a topic that they're typically discouraged from talking about. And they felt really respected because, you know, I, I told them the reason that we're doing these focus groups is because we're trying to create lessons for your curriculum. They felt quite empowered by being, you know, able to contribute that way in something that's going to be taught in their school eventually. So they were they were really excited about it. And they you had your odd one that was a little bit shy, but in general they were quite yeah, talkative. Yeah, the idea of talking about stuff like that yeah. in front of my friends would have been absolutely mortifying. Well, I think that because I used the vignettes, I think that really kind of detached them 
from it. So it wasn't giving their personal experiences yeah. or anything. They could just give their opinion about a character, which is a lot more comfortable than saying, oh, well, this has been my experience. And, you know, they, they it's one step removed. So that's why the vignettes were used. And it seemed to really put them at ease because it's, it's really easy to just talk about a character in a program or in a story yeah. or something because it's just like... You know, it's not me, so you can't really hold me accountable for anything. Yeah. So, Did any of them mention that they had conversations about this before with parents or with teachers or with each other? Uh, I did ask them at the end um, if they had ever had any conversations about consent or anything, and most of them had not. A couple of the boys actually had said they received lessons in primary school about good touch and bad touch and boundaries within relationship, which you do see in some in some primary schools, they do give those lessons. But again, it's at the school's discretion whether to give those lessons or not. But really, that was it was two boys out of 66 kids that I interviewed that had said they had received any kind of consent lessons. They hadn't received anything in secondary school, either the year seven or the year eight. They said really the only education they got was the stuff that you kind of expect them to get about biology, puberty. It's just not enough. And they said it's not very helpful. That doesn't help us navigate relationships. We don't know what to expect. Those experiences are coming up and they're coming up quickly. They already expect to start engaging in in more sexual activity or more intimate activity by the age of like 14 and 15. So they're just right there and they don't have any information about how to safely navigate that, how to talk to their partner. All they know is this is where babies come from and that's it, which is not helpful at that age. (laughs) I mean, it's good information to know, but it it's just not enough. But yeah, they, they said they hadn't had any conversations with their peers really about it. They didn't didn't talk about that kind of stuff. They talked about kissing and, and boyfriends and girlfriends, etc. But they didn't talk about consent or anything like that. I think just because of their age, it, it wouldn't come up naturally in conversation. These children, obviously, between 11 and 13... They're not reading the Daily Mail. They're not following <laughs> Donald Trump on Twitter. Oh my God! Hopefully not. Imagine no. How happy they yeah. must be. Well, as soon as they found out I was American, I did have oh, some they... Trump questions. <laughs> yeah. Where, where are they picking these attitudes about consent up from? Do you think? I couldn't really say from the research, because that's not a question they were asked as to where they they got this these ideas. Um, I think that would have been a whole other session to have. Yeah. <laughs> But what we can gain from research with older adolescents is that they get a lot of this information from conversations with peers. So when they are older, they are starting to have those conversations with peers, but they get a lot of information from movies, television shows, and music videos. And one of the kids, and I don't know if he was just trying to be exciting in the group, but when I asked about where they got lessons about consent, he said, oh, Pornhub. And, oh, dear God. And he was 11. Oh, yeah, and God. I was just... <laughs> Did they have a consent section? <laughs> I kind of expanded on that. I was like, well, are you learning about consent from Pornhub? Or are you just learning about sex? And he's like, well, I guess just sex. And I was like, yeah, I don't think uh, consent conversations are really a part of pornography. Can you imagine if they were? Uh, That'd be... Sexy pre-sex chat. Yeah. yeah. I think that would be good. That would be excellent. I mean, it wouldn't solve a lot of my other feelings about porn. <laughs> no. <laughs> No, and I, I still even think if those were there, I think um, you probably have the chance to fast forward. And if you're looking at porn as a as a young male or female, I don't think you're going to watch that part. You're probably going to fast forward to the, the good bits, if, if you will. 
Yeah, like, come on, let's speed up. Although, speaking of adverts, actually, thank you for for bringing that up. A couple of them did mention that they had seen the consent and tea. I was going to bring this up, the one where the bra was talking. Yeah. But the thing with that is, I've seen that on 4OD, on a lot of things, but Mm. on programmes that are aimed at children who are considerably older than 11 and 13. Yeah. It's true, I've only ever seen it on 4OD as well, actually. Yeah, so they've they've seen the, the one with the bra and, you know, the genital talking to each other yeah. but they've also seen that i don't know if you're familiar with the consent and the tea oh, you can find it just on youtube you just type in consent and tea and it was i think created by one a police department and it was likening um asking for consent as asking somebody if they wanted a cup of tea saying it's clever and it's probably aimed for older people who can uh, who can talk about these subjects in a little bit of more mature manner but what i found is when they had mentioned it they just kind of laughed about it because i do think they tried to use some humor to talk about consent and it's just i find that to be maybe quite ineffective way to talk about consent even with older adolescents you know we don't teach them things in school that are really serious and try to make it funny i don't know why we would try to make consent funny because it's not because the impact of of not negotiating consent and experiencing sexual violence or becoming a perpetrator of sexual violence is not funny at all so i don't really agree with the the use of these these little advertisements they need to make them like the public service broadcast which were terrifying I've never, I've never ever put a rug on a shiny surface. I've never climbed a pile on them. No. They are tempting. <laughs> because you saw those and you're like, oh my God. Yeah. I think yeah. you're right because it is serious. Mm. And so to still have that little bit of fear, even though it's now tinged with humour being frightened of it, mm. when you're in your 40s, it means it's stuck with us. Yeah. Because I, I don't know where they... I don't really watch television, so I don't really know if, where they've popped up on the TV or if they just found them on, on YouTube or their friends have seen that. If they really found the... Um not the tea one funny, but the other one with the, the talking boobs and... I mean, that is funny. It is it is funny, <laughs> but it was just like, oh, that's not really the... Yeah. No, the, that's not the takeaway message. Yeah, exactly. So if that's what they're getting, if that's the only information that they're getting, I know they're trying to make it more accessible and trying to open up dialogue about it, but I think I kind of just missed the mark there. So don't really think it, it should be made into a really light subject for kids. I think it doesn't have to scare them. We don't want to... Um, Jennifer, we need to scare them. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to make relationships and intimate experiences in relationships something to be feared. That's not going to be very helpful, but what is going to be helpful is that they learn communication skills and how to talk to a partner about what's okay and what's not. And I think some of the programs that I've looked at, have it, it just sounds like really clinical, the way that they've brought about like how to talk about consent with a partner, and it's just like it's not really using language that that young people use. So it's just not they're not going to ask, oh, can I touch you there? And they're just not going to do that. It's no. awkward. It's it's clumsy, you know. So you also kind of have to figure out, you know, how do they talk about these things? You know, what what's a way they talk to their friends about if if whether other things are okay? Like what kind of language do they use? Because that's what's going to be most effective in the lessons. Like these are ways that you can check if your partner is happy with things and you can use just your regular language you don't have to talk in this really robotic like clinical way that's going to be awkward for everyone and probably will kill the mood you know (laughs) i mean let's be realistic i'm not a parent i don't have Mm. kids but i've got mates who have got kids and i think there's still a nervousness around talking to your kids or kids reaching an age where you've got to start talking to them 
about sex, about consent. Mm. The fact that consent is now a thing that you have to... I don't think I was ever taught about consent yeah, at I all. Wasn't, I wasn't either, no. <laughs> but it's, I guess part of the nervousness is because you don't want to think about your little ones doing that. And it's like, mm. oh no, they're growing up. But it is also that sort of prudishness, maybe more British way of, oh, I don't like to talk about this anyway. More sort of Hannah. Yeah. Kind of, yeah this, <laughs> this makes me uncomfortable. Mm. But I think it feels like it needs to start much, much earlier. And coming from the people that most children, when we're lucky and have good parents, trust most in their life. Yeah. Do you think that kids are being taught about this? No, I, I don't. And I think but some of it is because there is a level of discomfort And I think a lot of it is a lack of knowledge. When we do think of consent, we automatically go to sexual intercourse. And it's not appropriate to talk to really young kids in typical situations about sexual intercourse. That opens up a whole can of worms that they're probably just not quite ready to talk about. But I think it comes from parents also thinking that, like, consent, sexual intercourse, why do I need to talk to my 10-year-old about consent? Like, they're, they're nowhere near that. But there is a way that we can talk about consent with kids at a very young age. We just have to talk about consent in situations that would be relevant to them. So 11- and 12-year-olds, you know, they're starting to kiss. They play truth or dare. The dare is always a kiss. They play spin the bottle. You know what happens there. So it's just like those kinds of things are going on. Yeah, I go and sit in another room and refuse to play. <laughs> A lot of kids want to play, you know, it is exciting, but there is that, I mean, there's that level of, of peer pressure around it and stuff. But I mean, we could, you know, parents could talk to their kids about consent in in, in that context. They don't have to talk about these really, uncom- like, it would be uncomfortable to try to talk to a really young kid about that, because they probably ask you loads of questions that maybe you're not quite ready to answer but talk to them about consent in other ways so I think that thinking about what's relevant for them at that age so in primary school you probably don't need to talk to them about intimate touching or anything like that unless you know you're having a a conversation about how to protect themselves against abuse but those I mean those lessons would still be relevant but when they're talking about their their friends and stuff you know it's just like make sure they're they're comfortable with what you're doing you know make sure that you're asking if this is okay you can talk to them about um, relationships and boundaries like borrowing things etc using someone else's things and also who who chooses the film you're watching the game you're playing whatever if it's always the same person then you think that's not teaching that kid a lesson that it's not all about you yeah, it's it's really just teaching them, you know, we don't have to even say the word consent with, with young kids. You can just talk about, like, this is how you know you you treat each other with respect in your relationships, etc. You can frame it in that way. And I think that's what what they use in primary schools when they are teaching these types of topics. They are framing it in just a friendship context, which is appropriate. And then the next level would be where I'm focused on is the kissing, the touching, the sexting. And then when they get to about year 9, 14, 15, then it's time to start those conversations about consent and sexual intercourse, well, I suppose ideally, if you, if, if you get them young enough... Yeah, <laughs> that's the problem. The, the end job is easier because mm. they've already got a base yeah, It's just kind of like scaffolding, just, you know? Yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, you and I met on Twitter in the thread about a quite horrifying story mm. about a young girl, I think she was around five or six. She's six, yeah. Six, who had had her, like, pants pulled down and her dress pulled up by a, a group of boys in the playground. Mm. And the horrifying thing to me about that story was that she was the person who got told off because yeah. they said, why did you let the boys pull your pants down? And it's absolutely staggering because there is, obviously, A, there's the issue of consent in this, but there is the issue of who is to blame. If we're blaming five or six-year-old girls for what happens to them in a playground, 
what hope do we have? Yeah, I think I think in that situation, it was really surprising that an adult came upon that situation and didn't immediately see it as a safeguarding issue. I think had most adults come a- across a six-year-old with her, her tights and her, her underwear pulled down with two boys around that area, immediately those those children would need to be separated and they would need to be talked with they needed to have a conversation with an appropriate adult about what was going on there and figure out what was happening and if it was happening in a primary school those boys couldn't have been what any older than 11 so where did they learn to to do those things it's traumatic for that girl to have experienced that as well but we also need to look at how and why were these 11 year olds even doing something like this to a six-year-old girl because typically when you have young children that age that are abusing even younger kids they've typically been abused themselves and that's where they learn those things so that conversation really wasn't had in in the article but that is concerning as well because they've they've learned to to do this somewhere you don't just don't just make it up yourself so i don't know if that's been exposure to pornography did they did they fully grasp what they were doing and the impact of what they were doing did they mean to harm her was it was it just exploratory like you know what was going on in that situation but the response of the adult there was just to tell the boys to go away and then yeah, uh, reprimanded the girl for having her her tights and her underpants pulled around her ankles. But apparently that, had, according to the article, I think it had happened a couple of times. Mm. And the reason that this kind of came out in the news, I think the parents were really infuriated because it was, it was, I think it was that girl, her mom, and then another young child had something similar happen and it was just brushed under the rug and the child was kind of blamed for it. So they've started to speak out um, because obviously the situation is handled really improperly. So I think in that situation, it was a problem of not getting any safeguarding training. Um, so we need to talk to our teachers about this. Yeah, we need as well. to. Yeah, there's, there's been a little bit of, of research in that area as well. I think one that stands out was uh, in the States. I think they interviewed uh, football coaches, um, <laughs> which I think that's a whole other session. <laughs> football or soccer? Uh, football, American football, yeah. yes. There was a horror story a few years ago about a whole town that had covered up an incident. For the football team. I think that was in Ohio, wasn't it? Steubenville. Was it? Steubenville, Ohio. But yeah, it's it, it's rampant at, at American high schools, and I'm sure it's you know a big problem at secondary schools here, but there's a really hyper-masculine culture among sports teams in the States and in high school, especially in American football. But yeah, so they interviewed the coaches, because coaches are really influential at that age, and both boys and girls listen to their coaches when they're, when they're involved in, in sports, and not just for advice and sports. It's kind of almost like they're a big brother or a big sister or another parent. And so they wanted to see what kind of ideas these coaches um, had about consent and, and sexual violence. And a lot of them had ideas that were in line with victim blaming. And obviously, you know, you'd have these conversations in, in locker rooms and stuff and the coaches would overhear them and they wouldn't reprimand the kids or anything. They wouldn't say, you know, the way that you're talking is inappropriate. These these beliefs are, are wrong. They're really dangerous. It's, it's very harmful to think this way because they thought, oh, it's just, it's kind of harmless. So yeah, we do need to have education for teachers as well because they bring that to the to the situation too and how they treat students in in the school who are victims or perpetrators of sexual harassment and violence a word that's come up several times when you were chatting about your research and that word is sexting that's worrying because that is incredibly private Mm. because it's on a little box that they carry around with them 
the awful thing that happened to that little girl in the playground was visible. Mm. This feels like it's it's more insidious, maybe, yeah. mm. because it, it's harder to, to eke it out and to get them to admit it. What, what did you find about sexting? Well, when I asked them if they were, if they kind of had heard stories of sexting in, in their groups, um, in their schools, they said that they had heard kind of horror stories, not some stuff that had happened at their schools, but that had happened at other schools. So they're quite aware that kids around their age are, are sexting. And they just said how horrible the situation was, and they didn't understand why the kids would engage in it, etc. So the kids, I, and it might have been like just socially desirable answering, like, oh, how, how, why would you do that? I don't understand. Uh, why you would send a picture of you in just your bra. So that was kind of their position, saying they didn't really understand why people would do it, but they were quite aware that it, it, it does happen. Went over the, the sexting situation. Again, it was putting the blame with the girl, saying that she knew that he would continue to pressure her to do it, so why did she continue to have the conversation with him? And that went into another theme that I developed, which was around relationship maintenance. And they thought that compliance with an unwanted sexual activity, including sexting, was better because that would continue the relationship. And they thought in that situation, I asked, you know, why do you think the girl continued to to have the conversation? And both the boys and girls were like, oh, well, if she didn't, you know, he'd dump her. It, that was really disappointing to hear that. And they were saying, yeah, and they were saying, oh, you know, it's just better to go along with it if you want to to continue the relationship. When we spoke to Laura Bates, we talked about this. There is this gulf that exists between our generation and the generation that came after in terms of keeping up with the many different ways in which people can be talking to your children or children can communicate with each other. It's difficult for people to look out for stuff because they don't necessarily know that this is... You know, parents don't always know. If your kid's got a phone, you don't always know what they can and can't access, who can be talking to them. Mm. I have a lot of sympathy. Also, I I have a bit of a bee in my bonnet about YouTube because (laughs) children will sit down and watch their favourite person. What's the word? YouTuber? Is that a word? Influencer or YouTuber. And they can be talking about something relatively harmless, but nonetheless, you know, that can roll on to another video that someone did that you might also like this. And there mm. are views that they will be absorbing about mm. stuff like this. And those people are seen as being, you know, they're called influencers because they think they're cool. And yeah. they're mm-hmm. Like, the, the sort of the attitudes, it's very difficult. I mean, in the old days, you, you could kind of could contain who had access to your children because you could say you're not watching that television program or yeah. you're not doing that. And it's so much harder with the internet and particularly... Now kids have got iPads and phones and things to, to control. Yeah, it's, it's it just, it's, it is very private, like you said. It's mm-hmm. just, and it's very easy for them to start looking at things. And, and if they know that they're not supposed to be looking at it, they can, yeah. they can what is it, the incognito yeah. tab? Yeah, they yeah. can just go into incognito mode and they can look at all these things yeah. that, that it keeps it private from the, the search history and everything. Yeah, I know this isn't the point, but I'm making a note of this. <laughs> yeah, I don't know about this at all. Yeah. Incognito, Incognito mode. mode. When you log on to somebody else's uh, computer at work, not in this job, but in other jobs, <laughs> and you see they've been they're not incognito, you're like, what have they been doing well, in their yeah. lunch hour? It's quite handy for things for you and I for things like when you ordered a present from someone and then when they go on your page they're not going to go oh look somebody's bought me that because yeah. that Amazon page okay. is up or yeah. whatever. It's interesting you were talking about they've heard stories as well because the thing about stories is and particularly with I think with little boys 
you know, it doesn't actually matter if that story's true or not. Yeah. It's the fact that it exists and other children believe it. Mm. That if they say, well, my girlfriend at the other school, she let me do this. Once yeah. it's out there, then that's yeah. where it becomes urban legend, doesn't it? Within yeah. a school and then it, 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 it doesn't matter. Well, yeah, that's kind of what, when I wrote it up, it was just kind of like, I don't know if these were actual situations that had happened or if they were just rumours, you know. Because then when those uh, topics got brought up too, they were all trying to find out details. They were just latched onto it. It was like, who was it? You know, uh, where was the school? It said, what was her name? Yeah. And I was like, right, right. I just squashed those conversations. I was like, no, we're not talking. We're not spreading rumours in this group. But yeah, they latched right onto it. So I'm sure as soon as that focus group ended as well, they probably went right out and... And talked about it. The rumors spread, and the person's reputation is completely ruined, especially at that age. You get just one rumor about you at school, or if one, if you do send a picture or something, it just takes that one one time to to cause a lot yeah. of bother. And I think that's really where we need to educate because they're going to look at stuff. They're 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 curious and they're going to look. But I think that. Well, we can't necessarily control every single thing that they do. We can try to educate them about the negative impact that it can have if they themselves engage in this type of activity. You know, a lot of them were familiar with the the concept of once it's on the internet, you can never get rid of it. So just trying to really drive that message home, it's just like if you choose to send this to someone on your phone, it's out there for anybody to see, no matter how much you trust this person, don't do it. And I think that probably the best way forward for that just to try to get them to, to realize how bad it could be if they do decide to do it. Hello, Mickey here, just popping in to let you know about our last gig of the year. That's right. If you listen to this on Wednesday, you missed our Tuesday gig, which was The Men. And December the 16th sees normal service resuming with some cracking birds. We have got Lolly Adafope, we've got Felicity Ward and we have got Laura Bates at Leicester Square Theatre, 7 o'clock. Grab your tickets, easily done. Just go to our page on Sarah's website, www.sarahmillican.co.uk forward slash standard hyphen issue. See you there. You said there was two stages to your mm. study, and this is the first. Can we talk about what's coming next? Yes, yeah, so what's coming next um, is that I've developed a consent education program. It's it's three lessons long, so about 45 minutes to an hour for each lesson, and the topics are based on my findings from the first uh, study. So I wasn't quite sure where to aim the intervention so it's just like do we need to just kind of have a definition of consent do we need to just talk about that or do we need to address other issues around consent for this age group so what I found is we really need to address sexual violence myths we need to address victim blaming attitudes so that's really where the the program focuses on so that will take place in two schools in northern England starting in January so we're just doing the recruitment process now obviously we had to get approval from the head teacher now we're in the process of getting all the the parent consent forms in which is kind of a nightmare if anybody's done research in schools out there you know what that's like a lot of them is just at the bottom of a gym bag (laughs) well we've tried to make a a form tutor competition so that's to try to get at least 90% of their 
form groups, consent forms back. So that's not an endorsement of the, the project or anything. And the parent doesn't have to say yes. They just have to choose yes or no and sign it and the kid can bring it in. So, And then they'll have a little raffle for Amazon vouchers to try to get them to get the, the consent forms in. Basically, so I'm just paying them, basically, to try to help me. <laughs> the irony that you're not getting the consent forms in for the consent lessons. <laughs> yeah, yes. I, I hope most parents are ticking the yes box, right? Out of the ones that I've had back, only a few have said no. Um, and when I did the recruitment for the focus groups, I went to parents' evenings and um, had all of the materials out so they could see what the vignettes were, the questions I was asking. And the overwhelming majority of parents were really responsive and really positive about the research. Only a couple of them said no, they just didn't feel their kid was ready. That's, that is the right as a parent to make that choice. A couple of them, the kids didn't want to take part. They were just like, oh no, I don't want to talk about that, which you do find. But that was a very, very small minority who, who felt that way about the project. Everyone else was really into it. They were like, yeah, I want to talk about it. And the parents were like, yeah, this is brilliant. The fathers and mothers were all about it. So well, that's great. That's really good. That's really positive. Yeah. And we don't have to talk we to them. We should try to get parents involved if possible and try to help them and, and try to create materials that they can use in their home to talk to kids about consent and talk because I think a lot of them do and they want their kid to be knowledgeable and they want their kid to be safe, but they just don't know how to how to bring up the subject. They don't know if what they're going to say is, is right or wrong. And a lot of them just don't have the, the correct information themselves. Like you were saying, you know, we didn't get any kind of education about no. consent. I didn't. Yeah. So I think a lot of parents who are in the same boat and who are not consent researchers have kids and they're like, I don't, I don't know how to I, I, talk I to like, them about this. Almost the opposite. The lessons that I did get, and that was from home, from my dad, were very much that a threat to you was a man who was going to come at you in an alleyway or whatever. Mm. So it actually was almost completely the opposite. The threat was always strangers. Yeah. And it, it kind of the idea that the threat to you might actually be someone you 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 know wasn't mm. wasn't a thing at all. Yeah. You do get, you know, the lesson stranger danger. You yeah. know, you get told that, you know, don't talk to strangers, etc. Yeah, the person, if anyone's gonna hurt you, it's gonna be this especially as women, yeah. it's gonna be some strange man in a van that's who's which gonna is hurt you. Which is not slightly. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It is more likely to be a family member, a friend of the family, or a peer. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that, that's where their lessons, you know, need to come. But I think that they're like, how do I talk to my kid about the fact that somebody they know who's at our house all the time might might hurt them without, you know, terrifying them? Because you don't want them to be scared of everyone, yeah. thinking no. everyone's going to try to hurt me. So it is just kind of walking that fine line of, of teaching them how to protect themselves. And I think they've, I think the NSPCC has a lot of materials available for teachers to use, and parents could actually use them as well to kind of talk to their kids about. About, you know good touch and bad touch anything in this area is bad you know nobody should be touching it I think they've come up with these really great charts that it just has like color-coded bodies um, <laughs> so don't, I don't actually remember who's come I don't know if it was the NSPCC who came up with it but it's really great about like, safe spaces had the green so a hand is a safe space if someone touches your hand it's not a big deal if someone touches your head it's not a big deal or your foot but then got orange spaces uh, like your thighs are kind of orange you know that's tricky business I mean anything in your underwear obviously is a red it's a no-go area yeah. and so those are ways 
ways to talk to kids about safety and that without saying you know don't be scared of your uncle or be scared of your uncle yeah. <laughs> we were chatting, uh, off mic when we went to get a coffee before we started the interview about when you're little and quite often when you're really little and quite often they'll be like oh give your give your grandma a kiss goodbye mm. or give your auntie a kiss goodbye and sometimes kids are like no i don't i don't want to i was very much like i don't want to have to kiss but you were forced mm. into giving that person a kiss even though you didn't want to. And I'm finding my mates with their kids are very much, they'll go, do you want to give Auntie Mickey a hug? And I'll hold my arms out. And if I get a hug, great. And if not, I'll go, high five. Yeah. And that's <laughs> great. Because yeah. I think it should be the kid's yeah. choice. Absolutely. So that's that's maybe a really early lesson on teaching them it's, that it's fine to say no. Yeah, and I think it's a great lesson. I think a lot of parents in the past have encouraged that because they don't want the family member, family friend to be, to feel bad or to feel awkward or anything. But now it's it's moved away towards that. And you do see a lot of parents now just saying, oh, do you want to? And and being able to just say yes or no and just saying sorry to the person like sorry she doesn't really want to right now. It's yeah. like as a normal human being you should just say, Well that's fine, no worries, I'll see you later. But yeah. But yeah. The whiskers tickle. I don't yeah. wanna yeah. I think that's a, a great early way to do it when they're really, really little and you don't have to really have any conversation with them there. That is just showing them in the moment, like, this is it's okay to say no if you don't want to touch someone or let them touch you. It's your body. And, yeah, I think that's a great way to, to start. Thank you so much for your time, Jennifer. This has been super interesting. Okay, thank you for having good me. Good yeah, yeah, thank you. January. I hope it goes really well. Yeah, It'll be thanks. interesting to know how, yeah, come how it tell impacts. Us how yeah. That went. yeah, hopefully we'll have some, some more information in a, in a few months about how the... The program worked, etc. So we'll post updates on Twitter and writing a paper up right now for a journal article to see if anyone's interested in publishing the the findings of the focus group. So it's coming together, but it is a it is a process. So it's taking a little bit of time, but yeah, that's that's really the next step. Please publish me. Standard issue for all women.